said this a couple weeks ago, so my, um, as we were finishing up uh, with Ecclesiastes, my uh, general um, thought for uh, evening service is to preach through the Old Testament, and uh, I want to also, I want to preach through the Psalms, but I'm not going to go straight through them because that'll be a long time, <laughs> um, and so I want to chip away at them and alternate um, with other Old Testament books. So I figure um, the last time we did the Songs of Ascent, and so um, then we did Ecclesiastes, and then now I, I want to do uh, probably, I'll probably just do uh, Psalm 1 to 16, so that'll probably be about four, a little over four months with some evening services we might um, not have or have uh you know, if we have a guest speaker, so probably a little over four months, we'll do 1 to 16, and then we'll do another Old Testament book. But um, for tonight, we're going to be in Psalm 1. So read along with me, and then I'll pray, and we'll get into this psalm. Psalm 1. <clears throat> How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we look at this psalm, help us to grasp its significance, understand the implications and the applications, the principles therein, and just to also... Um, Reflect upon the fact that you have, by your spirit and through men of old, uh, given us psalms, hymns to praise you, that describe your glory and your character and your ways. We thank you for the Psalter and for the psalms. And as your word says, uh, that we are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so help us to do that. Help us to encourage one another and help us to um, glean encouragement, guidance, and wisdom from this psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And as we look at the Psalter, um, there is, uh, some of you know, uh, it's, it's organized, it's split up into five books. And uh, several different authors um, Many of them, or probably, um, say, almost half of them are written by David, uh, some by Asaph, uh, some by the sons of Korah, uh, Solomon, Moses, and then uh, many are anonymous. Um, and they're organized um, not in the, the way in which they are written, not chronologically, but almost uh, categorically, according to the books. Um, there is some chronology. It's, it's kind of hard um, for, to, to um, I guess, categorize them or, or um, see the order. Um, some have done a, a decent job at, at seeing the order, um, namely the books. And then there's, there's different uh, types of psalms. There's those songs of ascent. There's messianic psalms. There's uh, royal psalms. There's... Psalms of Lament, um, and then uh, different uh, categories, which uh, some of them overlap, Psalms of Wisdom. Here in the Psalm 1, um, some have called this the uh, most important psalm, uh, because it is the first one, and it's, it's not first in, in terms of the order in which it was written, but it's, it's first almost in, in terms of importance and significance. Uh, some have said that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 um, stand almost as gatekeepers or doorkeepers to the whole Psalter. Um, and some would even say that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were originally one psalm, uh, 
And uh, we see that, that there's an indicator to that or indication in uh, what is called as an inclusio. Uh, the inclusio is uh, uh, a literary uh, term, a, a way uh, of writing in which you have uh, the beginning and the end are the same as part of Hebrew poetry. Um, and so we see that in Psalm 1 in the beginning. It says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then at the end of Psalm 2, we see how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And those two psalms fit nicely together. Uh, there's similarities in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 as well. Uh, many think that those were both one psalm. But nonetheless, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 stand as doorkeepers to the whole Psalter. It, it's almost the way into uh, worship or the way... Um, how we are to worship, the ways of worship, how we enter into worship, the way we're supposed to worship, um, prerequisites to worship. Uh, in his commentary on the Psalms, uh, Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, he says this, he says, it seems likely that this psalm was specially composed as an introduction to the whole Psalter. Certainly it stands here as a faithful doorkeeper, confronting those who would be in the congregation of the righteous with the basic choice that alone gives reality to worship with the divine truth that must inform it and with the ultimate judgment that looms up beyond it. And we, we see that. There's some prerequisites here as it describes essentially two types of person, the, the righteous and the wicked. And th that may even be a, a heading in your Bible as it is in mine, the way of the righteous and the wicked or the, the, the blessed man and the wicked man. It divides that up, uh, two ways, two paths, two destinations. Another commentator, he writes this. He says, the, this wisdom psalm basically functions as an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. Its theme is as big as the whole Bible because it tells of people, paths, and ultimate destinations. And we can see that in, in other parts of the Bible and in, in the Proverbs. Um, we see a contrast between the, the righteous and the wicked, the uh, wise and the foolish. Um, certainly we see that in the New Testament as well um, and throughout the whole Bible. And here we see this stark contrast between two characters, between their dispositions and their demeanors, their desires and deeds, and their directions and destinations. And so that's how we will look at this psalm. We will see it primar primarily in, in terms of the characters. The two main characters is the blessed man and the wicked man. So we will see first the blessed man's walk in verses 1 to 3. As it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. This is the blessed man. This is the, the characteristics of of his life, of his walk, as the Bible talks about the, the walk uh, or a person's walk, meaning their pattern of life, their pattern of living, their behavior, how they go about their days and go about the places they go and their behavior uh, and their practices. And so we, we will see uh, four aspects of the blessed man's walk. We see here in these few verses his practice and then his passion his position, and his produce. First, his practice. And here we also see in verse 1, three aspects of his practice or his manner of life. First, we see the principles he lives by. As it says, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He, he, he doesn't listen to wicked people. He doesn't take advice from uh, sinners, from uh, uh, sinful people, from sinful sources, from uh, evil people, from wicked. He, he does not listen to uh, those who uh, walk contrary to God's law or God's ways. He, he doesn't uh, listen to evil counsel. 
And we can think about that. We, we think about that and perhaps in our own lives or um, in stories we heard or movies we've seen where you have those groups of people, the, um, those characters, you know, whether it's, you know, the bad kids in school or the criminals down the alleyway or uh, just the, um, the foul-mouthed, uh, sinful uh, unrighteous people that um, we see in society. And, and, and even in our day and age, it, it's even more so in our media. You see the, the blessed man or the righteous person, they do not take counsel from all the different uh, wicked forms of media and all the, the, um, the evil that is promoted through uh, movies and, and television sitcoms and internet. They don't receive that counsel. They don't listen to it. They don't accept it. They don't pattern their lives according to it. That's a blessed man. And whoever, whoever walks like he walks will be blessed as well. And it's interesting that um, the psalmist, he, he starts with how blessed is the man. This, this term, um, it, it's almost... Even more emphatic than what we see in the English uh, uh, could be blessedness or, or extremely blessed. Um, it also makes us think of uh, the Beatitudes in, in Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that um, he starts with, blessed are the, and he goes on and on about the characteristics of believers. And so the psalmist, he does the same, or rather, uh, Jesus um, is hinting back at Psalm 1, that we see the practice of the blessed man, that these principles he, he lives by. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Second, there's the discernment which guides him that he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He, he doesn't hang out where sinners are hanging out. There's a separation. And we see... Uh, this in um, many discipleship manuals, many many Christian books, this, this principle, uh, many churches, this principle of separation. It's also in, in many church constitutions, uh, separation. And, and yes, it's true that some churches um, have taken it a bit too far and gone too legalistic with their separation, and some have uh, second and third orders of separation where not only can you not hang out with somebody, but you cannot hang out with somebody who hangs out with somebody, and, and, and you've seen it, and, and in a religious context, um, say, you know, preachers that um, don't do ministry or don't preach at conferences with other preachers who have been known to preach at conferences with, say, other preachers who, and, and there, there is some wisdom in that, but we can take it too far. We can take it too, too far and, and be too legalistic with that. But nonetheless, there is wisdom in separating. Um, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be careful where we go because influence it works both ways. Um, we are to influence others for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of righteousness, but we are also to uh, know our own strengths and weaknesses, and there are certain places that some of us can go where others of us can't go. And, and certainly, for a new believer, they should be even more careful about practicing this principle of separation and not to hang out where sinners are hanging out. Every city that you go to has those areas of town, those areas where there's either higher crime or um, it's more poverty or it's just more worldly. There are those areas that there, there might not necessarily be crime, but there's worldliness. It's like uh, Vanity Fair. Um, I think of uh, many, uh, many cities that are really um, built up and they're clean, but it's just worldliness everywhere trying to sell you everything and it's just all over and it's sometimes you can go there as a believer and it almost turns your stomach 
we're, we're to be careful. We're to separate ourselves from every, everything that would uh, lead us astray or influence us in the wrong way. And this is what the blessed man does. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor third, uh, sit in the seat of scoffers. This is the, the person that is mocking God and mocking Christianity. It's not just your normal run-of-the-mill um, sinner or unrighteous person or wicked person. This is a person that is hostile towards God and towards God's people and towards the church. The blessed man separates himself completely from these types of scoffers and mockers. And so we see his practice his practice, his manner of life. And then second, we see his passion in verse 2. His delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. As a psalmist says, his delight, it's almost like his, his only delight, all that he thinks about, his passion, what drives him, what, what um, he obsesses over. The law of the Lord. The, the word of God, this is, it, it's not a burden nor a duty, but it's a desire. He longs for it. And yes, we, we know in, in our Christian lives that there are times in which we don't feel like reading the Bible, but we know we should, and, and uh, there is a sense in which we, um, by way of duty and discipline, we do what we know we ought to, but there's also a sense that in those moments that we ought to confess and, and even repent that our desire is not in the law of God. It's not in the word of God. We're, we're not desiring it. We have to work ourselves up to go to it. But the blessed man, he delights in it. He thinks about it. He meditates upon it day and night. And in this term, law, it's not just the Ten Commandments or um, necessarily just the, the Torah, but it could be encompass um, all of the Old Testament. Primarily, it is the Torah, but that term is, is used um, in terms of, of God's uh, revelation of the Word of God. He delights in it. He thinks about it. He meditates upon it. It reminds me of what David said in Psalm 27.4. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. It is what drives him. This is, it's not a hope or a wish, but it's a desire that is planned and pursued. It's day and night. He meditates all the time. Willem Van Gemeren, Old Testament scholar, he writes this. He says, Meditation is not the setting apart of a special time for personal devotions, whether morning or evening, but it is the reflection on the Word of God in the course of daily activities. Regardless of the time of day or the context, the godly respond to life in accordance with God's Word. Even where the Word is not explicit, the godly person has trained his heart to speak and act with wisdom. It's why uh, Bible memorization is so important. And we're, we memorize verses, and it's, it's not just so that we store up information. It's so that when we go about our days, go about our daily lives, and we go to different places, we remember that word, and we can apply it, and it, hopefully at the point of temptation, and that at the point in which we are struggling with sin, um, hopefully that word and, and the Holy Spirit will bring that to memory and we'll be able to resist temptation or to um, walk in obedience. That's why we memorize scripture, but it can't just re remain at memorization. It has to go forward to meditation and then to application. And there's a sense that this meditation is... is uh, uh, Musing over the word, turning it over in your heart and in your mind and thinking about its implications and its applications. This uh, reminds us of Joshua 1.8 where 
um, Joshua is uh, instructed, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night that you may be careful to observe all that is written in it so, so that then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. This meditation, and it was especially important for um, Old Testament saints and even some New Testament saints who did not have the privilege of the written word of God. And so they would um, have to go learn the word of God from the temple or from the priests or in synagogues or wherever there was a scroll and somebody to explain it and teach it. And then they would have to um, commit it to memory so that they could take it with them. And it, it, it encouraged them even more to commit it to memory so that they could have the word of God with them as they go about and they would meditate upon it. This is what the blessed man does. We see his walk in his practice, his passion for the word of God, and third, his position. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. And notice there's three things concerning his position in life in, these, uh, in verse 3. That he is first, he's providentially planted. He is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Trees don't plant themselves. He is planted there. He's planted in this position where he is able to absorb, in a sense, the, the streams of water, the, the nourishing water, which could uh, be an illustration of the, the Word of God, that, that this life-giving uh, source of water which will feed him and will help him to grow and to be nourished and to bear fruit. Second, he's firmly fixed. He, he, he's, he's not easily moved. He's planted. He's firmly planted. And, and he is continuously sustained by the water. It shows God's sovereign hand, his providential hand. That, you know, we think about our own lives and, and uh, we have to ask, why did I end up where I, I'm at? And uh, I remember... Um, one reading one book uh, a couple years ago, actually audio book, a uh, mystery of providence by John Flavel, and um, he talks about providence and the providence of God and why you're at where you're at in life, how you came to where you came, and especially for Christians and especially to be exposed to the Word of God or good teaching. That is God's providence and His His divine uh, uh, blessing upon your life. Because you could be like many other people that had uh, been born and raised in a country where there is no access to the gospel or the word of God or in some false religion. But by God's grace, he planted you where you're at. And it is almost incumbent upon you to drink from these wells, from the streams of water, from this life-giving water and be nourished by it. Fourth, uh, Fourth aspect of the blessed man's walk. We, we've seen his practice, his passion, his position, and now his produce. Because he is planted by streams of water, he yields fruit. He produces fruit. He bears fruit, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. And notice it says it, he, he yields its fruit in its season. You see, his produce is is according to its kind and its time. He yields its fruit in its season. Um, the whole Bible and, and even the New Testament talks about fruit, about bearing fruit, about um, being a fruitful believer. Even uh, Jesus in one of his parables, the parables of the soils, he says this in Matthew 13, 23, he says, talks about the, the seed being sown on um, different types of soils. And he says this, the, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. 
And just like the, the tree here, the blessed man, he yields fruit in its season, according to its season, according to its kind. Uh, we bear fruit as believers, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, according to our uh, strengths and weaknesses, according to our seasons of life, according to our opportunities, we bear fruit. We're all different. We're all unique, but we're all called to be faithful. And just as some have, uh, as in another parable, some have give, been given uh, one mina or two mina or, or five, um, whatever uh, you have been given, whatever you ha- the talents, the, the strengths, the weaknesses, the spiritual gifts you have been given, you are to uh, be faithful with those gifts. And as a, the blessed man, he is faithful and he bears fruit. He yields fruit. He is fruitful. But that fruit is according to its kind and its time, in its season. But that fruit is also abiding. It's also abiding. It, its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. We know we have times and seasons of, of our lives, uh, whether in, our, our, in spiritually in the, the, the um, churches we are, are members of or, or um, the ministries we are involved in and, and we, uh, or the jobs we work in, we, we uh, are called to prosper. We are called to be faithful. Wherever we're at, whatever we do, and as so long as we drink from those streams of water and we meditate upon the law of God and we uh, seek to do His will, we will bear fruit. It's interesting, there's another picture of this. There's actually two pictures um, in the Bible about this, uh, about a person almost like a tree by streams of water, or an actual tree itself, rather. In Ezekiel 47, it's interesting seeing this, that talking about the trees um, that are bearing fruit in the millennial kingdom, it says this, Ezekiel, as he's um, showing and illustrating the, the uh, temple in the um, millennial kingdom and what is, what is happening in, in that kingdom and how um, God is restoring the, the kingdom and the earth. And he, he writes this, he says, and by the river on its bank on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows out from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. It's, it's, it's planted right by the water and it drinks up that water and that water is flowing from the sanctuary. This, this will happen, but it's also a picture of how we are to live like the blessed man that is uh, drinking up the water of life uh, from the word of God. And we will abide and our fruit will abide and will bear fruit in our season. Our leaf will not wither. Whatever we do will prosper. And it all goes back to our walk, to our practice. This is almost... Um, in a progression because of uh, where the blessed man has been planted and because of his practice and his passion, his position, he bears fruit. He produces. He produces. And then we get to the second character. We've seen the blessed man. Now we will see, we've seen the blessed man's walk. Now we will look at the wicked man's ways as we Read in verse 3, And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. And then we get this little phrase concerning the wicked. The wicked are not so, but, are, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. And it's interesting because as the psalmist um, elaborates on the blessed man, and what he's like, his practice, his passion, his position, his produce, everything about his life, all the characteristics of his life. He doesn't necessarily do the same with the wicked and in detailing what the wicked are like. He just says, simply says, the wicked are not so. And in the Hebrew, this, this term, not so, it's, it's emphatic. So it's, it's the exact opposite. 
of the blessed man. And so for everything that the first three verses say about the blessed man in his walk, the opposite is true about the wicked man in his ways. And just as there were four characteristics of the blessed man's walk, there are also four distinctions which mark the wicked man's ways. We see his demeanor, his desires, his dilemma, and finally, his disposal. And when you just look at the, what the blessed man is, and you flip that, and that is the wicked, because the wicked are not so. And so first we see his demeanor, that just as the blessed man is that person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, the exact opposite is true of the wicked man. The wicked does walk in the counsel of the wicked. That, that is who he is. He is amongst the wicked, and he spreads counsel. He listens to their counsel. He counsels them. They learn from one another, and then they try to entice other people to follow them and to join them in their wickedness. He does whatever is right in his own eyes. He walks in the counsel of the wicked, which is who he is. He does whatever is right in his own eyes, which is a term we see in the book of Judges. Throughout the book of Judges, that details uh, almost the descent of Israel into sin, and it gets worse and worse as the cycles of the Judges decline and get worse and worse. And throughout that whole book, we read this phrase and we hear it, and we see it especially at the end when we see the descent of Israel into depravity. It says this in Judges 21-25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the wicked man. This is his way. He, he, does, he, he walks in the counsel of the wicked. He does not delight in the law of Yahweh. He is a companion of fools and evil men. He stands in the way of sinners. He sits in the seat of scoffers. That's where he goes. That's his companions. That's his friends. That's his associates. That's who he learns uh, from. That's the circle in which he runs in. That's what he's all about. That's his demeanor. And this is, in a sense, exactly what Solomon warns young men about in Proverbs chapter 1. As, as Solomon writes the Proverbs to train up young men and to train up his own sons and he, to impart wisdom to them, we, we see in Proverbs chapter 1 and in many, many Proverbs, all throughout much of the Proverbs, we see these warnings, but especially in, in Proverbs chapter 1. So turn with me there, and I, I want you to see this in verses 10 to 16 of Proverbs chapter 1, that Solomon, in the first uh, seven, eight verses, speaks of the purpose for why he's writing the Proverbs and the benefit of the Proverbs. And then in verse 10, he says this, My son, if sinners entice you, do not be willing. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like sheol and whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Withhold your feet from their pathway, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. This is the way of the wicked. This is those who walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers. This is what they're like. And this is the, the group of people that, that the blessed man avoids, that he runs from, that he doesn't go near, that he separates him from. But the wicked man, this is his way. This is where he uh, lives and moves and has his being. But he not only uh, receives and walks in the counsel of the wicked and stands in the way of sinners, but he scoffs at the righteous and the law of God. This is what a scoffer does. He, he, he scoffs at those who follow Yahweh, those who follow God, those who seek to do God's will, he scoffs at them. And notice here that there is, it's not only these characteristics of the wicked man, but there is a descending order here. First, he walks, and then he 
slows down, he stops, he stands there, and then eventually he sits down and he takes his seat there. And this is almost a warning um, to, to us that, and, and concerning the, the deceitfulness of sin. That if you do not fight against sin, that it will eventually grab a hold of you and it will hold on to you and you will descend further and further into sin. And eventually, if you're not a true convert, if you're not really part of God's, you will become a scoffer. We see this in in many um, apostates, many who have walked away from the faith. Eventually, this is them. And it's, it's some sin, they, they, they went out from us because they really were not of us. And, and certainly there is sin involved in that, some besetting sin, some temptation that they cannot reject. And then they get further and further into that sin. They walk away from the church and then eventually they become mockers and scoffers of the church. Derek Kidner In his commentary, he writes this. He says, Certainly the three complete phrases show three aspects. Indeed, three degrees of departure from God. By portraying conformity to this world at three different levels. First, accepting its advice. Second, being party to its ways. And third, adopting the most fatal of its attitudes for the scoffers. If not the most scandalous of sinners are the farthest from repentance. They're the farthest from repentance, the scoffer. And this is a wicked man. This is his way. This is his demeanor. But second, we see his desires that unlike the blessed man who delights in the law of Yahweh and meditates on it day and night, the wicked man, he delights in his own law. He delights in the counsel of the wicked, in doing whatever is right in his own eyes. He dwells and meditates upon sin and evil. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool does not delight in discernment, but only in revealing his own heart or expressing his own opinions. He's all about himself and his own opinions, and he has it all figured out. He doesn't need to listen to anybody. He doesn't need to submit to God or his law. He has it all figured out, and he's going to do what he's going to do. And furthermore, he dwells on sin and evil. Psalm 36 says this about the wicked man, about sinners, that transgression declares to the ungodly within his heart. There is no dread of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his eyes for one to discover his iniquity and hate it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to consider to do good. And get this, Psalm 36, verse 4. He devises wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. That phrase in verse 4, he devises wickedness upon his bed. It's, it's the picture of the man at night, the wicked man at, at night or, or early in the morning as he wakes up. And he's just dreaming about all the wickedness and all the sin that he is going to engage in and going to delight in. And some of us have that testimony. Uh, especially if you were saved later in life, you could look back and you could uh, remember those times in which, um, especially during your days off, and you would uh, wake up in bed and just think of all the selfish, sinful things you were going to plan out that day and you were going to do. This is a wicked man. This is a picture of his desires. He, he doesn't meditate upon the law of God like the blessed man. He, he doesn't think about that. He meditates upon sin, upon wickedness, upon the counsel of the wicked. And then we see, third, his dilemma. We've seen his demeanor and his desires, and now his dilemma. Verse 3 As verse 3 talks about the blessed man being like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked man is the exact opposite. He lives in a wasteland. He does not bear fruit. His leaf does wither. He does not prosper, even even though in a worldly sense it might seem like he is. And what's interesting is as I, I was studying for this passage and, 
you can see um, parallels or a rephrasing throughout Scripture. Um, you can see some of the same illustrations. Um, but there's an interesting passage in Jeremiah, which it, it reads almost like a commentary to Psalm 1. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. And uh, we know some of us have memorized Jeremiah 17, 9. The, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? When verses 7 to 8, it says this, Jeremiah 17, Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, and whose trust is Yahweh, and he will be like a tree planted by the water that sends forth its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor refrain from yielding fruit. That's the blessed man. But just prior to that, Jeremiah explains the wicked man. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. And he will be like a juniper in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will dwell in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt which is not inhabited. This is a wicked man. He, he, he's not like the tree planted by streams of water, but he lives in a wasteland. And he lives in a wasteland first spiritually, in his heart and in his desires and in his innermost being and in his spiritual state, and then morally in his behaviors and his practices and his words. And then finally, it will show up and evidence itself in his physical uh, surroundings and where he lives and, and uh, the community in which he lives and the people he associates with. He lives in a wasteland. He also wastes resources and is unproductive, and, and, and namely those resources such as wisdom and the Word of God and righteousness. He doesn't care for it, and ultimately he falters and fails. Even if as we read in other places like Psalm 73 where we see the wicked are prospering. They may be prospering in a worldly sense, but ultimately in, in what, is, uh, what is important in terms of spirituality and in uh, what is true and, and what is good and upright, he, he falters and he fails. And so we see the wicked man's uh, way in his demeanor, his desires, his dilemma, and finally his disposal. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. And here we get this picture of uh, cultivating grain, is, uh, of uh, separating the wheat from the chaff. This second process, after the grain is threshed, after wh whether that's wheat or barley, usually some type of uh, wheat, barley, oats that, that grows on a grass and has a head of grain and then you, you pluck the grain, you gather up the grain and in the Old Testament world you would, uh, in the ancient world you would thresh it, um, different ways to thresh different types of grain but then you would get it all together and it would be threshed on a threshing floor and that threshing floor would usually be high up on a hill where there was wind and then the person that once they threshed it then they would take a pitchfork or a shovel and they would scoop it up and they'd throw it up in the air and so the breeze would catch the chaff, the chaff, the, the skin over the, the wheat that is weightless and, and it's useless and it would blow it away, it would drive it away and then so the weightier grain, the, the useful the, the, um, the profitable, the, the valuable grain would then fall to the earth because it has weight, it has substance, it's valuable, and the chaff is not valuable, it's weightless, it's useless, it gets blown away, it's driven about by the wind. This is the illustration of the wicked, and it, it, it's, it's a stark contrast from that of the blessed man who is depicted as a tree, which is stationary, it's substantial, it's alive. But the chaff shows a picture of the wicked as unsubstantial, as dead, dry, and useless. He is, in a sense, tested, he's found useless, and he's discarded. Makes me think of the, that, um, you know, what Daniel said to um, Belshazzar. You've been numbered, you've been weighed, and found wanting. 
the wicked man, he is convicted, he's condemned, and he's cut off forever. And this picture, this illustration of the chaff which the wind drives away, it's an illustration that is brought up again in the New Testament as um, Jesus is coming into his earthly ministry and John the Baptist is uh, preparing the way for him and he's baptizing in the wilderness. And in Matthew chapter 3, we hear this as John the Baptist, uh, in a sense, rebukes the Pharisees out of their curiosity who come to uh, see what is going on and why John is baptizing. And he tells them this in Matthew 3 and verse 10. He says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he says this concerning Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is what happens to the wicked man. This is their end. This is their disposal as God burns them up. He, he uh, gathers his wheat into his barn. Those people, the blessed man, that are useful, that are valuable, that are uh, precious to him. And then the wicked man is blown away, driven away by the wind, and he is eventually burned up with unquenchable fire. And this brings us to the third character in this psalm. We've seen the blessed man's walk and the wicked man's way. And now we see the Lord's reckoning. Verses 5 to 6. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. This is a third character. We primarily see uh, two characters in the blessed man and the wicked man, but then we see that ultimately, as everything does in the Bible, it points us to God. It points us to the fact that we will all uh, give an account for our lives as Psalm 1 is telling us over and over again that there is a judgment, there is a time of accounting that we will have to face God there, and that the wicked, they will not rise in the judgment. And so as we saw four characteristics of the blessed man and the wicked man, we see four characteristics of the Lord and His reckoning. We see His summons and His sentencing we see his setting apart, we see his esteem, and finally we see his desertion. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. We see that there will be a judgment, there will be a time that, that God has a judgment for everyone and everything. Even believers will be judged according to how they have spent their lives, how they have spent their time, their talents, their treasures, whether or not they've been faithful, as Jesus points in, in, in many parables to, um, in a sense, a judgment for believers in terms of rewards. But we rightfully and primarily think about the judgment for those who um, have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, have not repented, have not sought Him for forgiveness, have not believed upon Him for salvation, that there is a judgment. As we were going through Ecclesiastes and towards the end that, that Solomon gets to his conclusion and he says, Fear God and keep His commandments for He will bring every act into judgment. Every act. And Jesus, in a sense, will repeat that as He says that He will judge you for every careless word. For the condition of your heart, for your, the thoughts and intentions of your heart, for your desires, He will judge you. That God is a perfect and righteous judge and he has a judgment for everyone and everything and he will judge accurately and accordingly. He will separate the sheep from the goats just as he separates the wheat from the chaff. There is 
his summons and sentencing, and then his setting apart. He will divide everyone accordingly, as we see the sinners will not stand, they will not be in the congregation of the righteous. There is a setting apart. And even as Jesus warned that um, with, even within his church, uh, tares will grow up with the wheat. And in that parable, there is um, the, the servants ask, uh, should we you know, separate them and burn them? He said, no, wait, leave it, let them grow until the end of the age. And then, the, in a sense, the angels will separate them. And, they, and then the, the tares will be burned. There will be a separation, the wheat from the chaff, the tares from the wheat, and the sheep from the goats. God will put everyone in their place. He will put you in your place. He will divide everyone accordingly. Then we see his esteem in verse 6. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He knows the way of the righteous, not, not just in terms of pure, raw data, in terms of the information about where you go and what you do and, and the words you speak, but, but intimately he knows his own. He knows his own and he knows their way and he knows their desires and their heart and their um, passion and what makes them tick and what makes them move and the condition of their heart. He knows everyone perfectly. And he esteems his people. He knows the way of the righteous. He protects them. He guides them. He, like the blessed man, he has planted him by streams of water so that he yields his fruit in its season and his leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. He provides for his people. He blesses them. He guides them. But he also knows the way of the wicked as well. And they will perish. He will desert them. They will be cast into the outer darkness where their worm will not die and they will be tormented forever in utter darkness. That is the end. That is the end of the wicked that they will be cast out, burned, judged, destroyed forever. Is conscious and continual destruction. Because they're wicked, and that's what they deserve. Probably one of the most um, frightening passages in the Bible is uh, towards the end of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And just as Jesus was a perfect man and he was a son of God, he was a perfect preacher. And uh, many have rightfully said that this was the greatest sermon ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount. And towards the end, we have these terrifying words, words which no one would ever want to hear, but many will hear. Matthew 7, as he talks about verse 18 and talks about um, judging and how you judge the conditions of someone's life, though we cannot know it perfectly. He says this, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them the most terrifying words any person could ever hear. I never knew you. I never knew you. You were not a part of me. Maybe you hung out in church. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you heard the gospel, but I never knew you. I don't know who you are. You're not a part from me. You're not a part of my people. You're not a part um, of me. You're not within my body. So depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. And it's interesting because right before that, he talks about the, the people who will, in, in a sense, try to enter into heaven, try to enter in where he is and, 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 uh, and give as justification the fact of their religious works that, that um, they prophesied, that they proclaimed his name, that they cast out demons, that they even did many miracles. 
He says, I, that doesn't mean anything. I, I, I never knew you. That goes with what we heard this morning. That we are called to rejoice in the Lord and to boast in the Lord and not in our religious works. It doesn't matter what we do in terms of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord and of the Lord alone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's only through God that we can be justified, that we can be forgiven. It's only by His mercy and by His grace and that we who... Um, here or whoever may be listening who are outside of Christ, that all you can do is call upon him, to ask him for mercy, to repent from your sins, to, to seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near, to uh, look to him and, and ask that he would have mercy upon you. And for those of us who he has displayed his mercy and his grace in saving us, that will only and ever be our only boast that God has shown us mercy. I remember hearing, and many great heroes of the faith have said similar things on their deathbed, but I remember hearing and, and reading about Martin Luther. All the great things he's done, that we are, in a sense, recipients of his ministry to this day in the Reformation. And, and he, on his deathbed, um, said, we're, we're only beggars. We're just beggars. We're mere beggars. There's, there's nothing you can boast in at all. doesn't matter how many works you've done, you know, books written, sermons preached, uh, churches planted, money given. At the end, only God will be glorified, and only he, he will be our only boast. And that's ultimately what, um, what divides the blessed man and the wicked man. The blessed man just seeks after God. He loves him. He just wants to do what he desires, what God desires. He meditates upon his law. And the wicked man just, he's all about self. He's all about his own way. He doesn't care. I remember reading this little devotional a while back um, by this Scottish preacher named Alexander Smiley. He writes this, he, uh, this devotional on Matthew 7.13, which says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And then he comments. He says, there are only two gates. One of them is wide. Its name is self. My own desires, my own proud thoughts, my own righteousness, my own beloved and darling sins, my own plans and pleasures. The other gate is narrow. Its name is Christ. Christ sought with repentance and godly sorrow. Christ followed at any hazard. It is the gate of the crucifixion of self. There are only two ways. One of them is broad, easy, pleasant, comfortable, pleasing to the flesh, thronged with multitudes, a primrose path but always tending downward and bringing disastrous consequences. The other way is difficult and narrow, as it were through a gorge between craggy cliffs which nearly meet haunted by dangers and enemies, chosen by comparatively few. The Christian's toilsome pilgrimage and dangerous journey, ah, how the road climbs up and up. There are only two ends. One of them is destruction, dark, hopeless, irretrievable. The death of peace, the death of hope, the death of every good impulse, the death of the soul. The other end is life, life at its fullest, sublimest, sweetest, Life without sin and without sorrow. Life in the land of life and glory. Life in the presence of Christ to all eternity. It's rightly been said there's only two types of people in this world. And the Bible says that. Two types of people. The blessed man and the wicked man. And just says, Alexander Smiley said, two gates, two ways, and two ends for those two different types of people. And the question for us is, which type are you? 
what is your way, what is your path, and what is your end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm and how it confronts us. It confronts us in our lifestyles, it's, it confronts us in our desires and in our behaviors and in uh, the deepest parts of us, who we are. And it confronts us concerning our end. And that we will all face judgment. No one will escape. You are a perfect and righteous judge, holy, 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 and you will judge accordingly. But we're thankful that you are also merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you demonstrate your own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so though there is a perfect judgment, there is also a perfect salvation for sinners who repent and believe. We thank you for your grace and we pray for any of um, any person here who is not yours that they would be pricked in their heart that they would recognize that they are accountable to you and that they would repent and believe upon you that they would call upon you while you are near and seek you while you may be found we thank you for your grace and mercy help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called and to proclaim this glorious gospel to others it's in jesus name we pray amen